uh, the title of my message is Glorious Grace. And really, what I want to talk about is glory and grace. So maybe I should have titled it that way, Glory and Grace. This isn't really a versus, but it's just understanding a little bit what both are, glory and grace. And the reason I decided to talk about this is just different people that I've met and stories that I've heard with people that have, that have had a lot of suffering and loss in their life and their response to that, their response to the suffering and the loss, the pain of life. And we all, we all have it. We all, at some level, we deal with loss in our life. So there's the physical aspect of that with, with earthly relationships. But then you take that deeper and you realize that all of us as humans live with loss. For we were created to be more than what we are. But we know because of us being born in sin and we're living in a fallen world, we live with loss. We were meant to be more. So how do we deal with that, especially as Christians? How do we, when we come to the realization that we are, we are actually created for more, that's why the things of this world just cannot satisfy our hearts long term. And too often I see even us Christians live that lifestyle of going from one entertainment or one thing to, to the next. Uh, you know, maybe we can be really focused on, on, on growing our business or maybe we can be really focused on, you know, cleaning up uh, the house or really focused on, you know, trying to, to save up for that new vehicle. Those are all things that are a part of our American lifestyle. And again, not discounting that. And that has a level of importance in our lives. But when we use that to fill something in our hearts, and we tend to go, you know, ride the waves up, up, up and downs of life, and, and we always are trying to focus on something new, because life in and of itself is just not very fulfilling. We don't, we, we get no joy of just sitting there without our mind grabbing towards something. If you find yourself there, this message may be for you. I want to talk a little bit about the glory of God in we often say, well, our purpose on this, in this world is to bring glory to God, to bring Him glory. And, and yes, that's not a false statement. But when we think of God's glory, I've found myself here more than once in, my, you know, in the past where I find myself wishing for a revelation of some kind from God, or I find myself reading the Bible and I see where a man had a supernatural encounter with the glory of the Lord, and 
I, I find when I read those and I see the response and I, and I follow the, the trail of what happened after this man encountered the glory of God, sometimes it was a little bit confusing, you know, even to think of the children of Israel when they saw the glory of God on Mount Sinai. You would think, thank you Jasper, that that would be a completely life-changing event. You know, there was 70 of Israel's elders that went up to Mount Sinai, went up on the mountain. And it says that, that they saw the glory of God, or they saw a, an image of God, and it talked about him, looked like he was standing on like clear rock. On, uh, I believe there's a name for the rock, uh, a lot of translations would term it as lapis lazuli, I think is the name of it, lapis lazuli, something like that. Uh, but if you look it up, it's a precious stone and a blue in color, and they saw this image look like it was, was standing on it. Just a, a beautiful, and it says that they, they didn't die, they actually uh, ate with the Lord there. And if you can just imagine that, like we read those accounts in Scripture, but think about yourself being there it seems like you would never be the same. To see the glory of God, when Moses saw the glory of God, a common response for men that saw the glory of God was to fall on their face before His glory. And so I want to, I want to read a few passages. One is in Ezekiel and the other is in Revelation that give similar views. The one in Revelation is of the Son of Man. The account in Ezekiel, what he saw, it says, this was what I saw when I saw the glory of the Lord. The glory of the Lord, the Son of Man, and look at the similarities in what he saw. And so we'll start, and I'm going to be reading in Ezekiel chapter 1, but I'm going to, I, I took out some of the details, so it's a quicker read and, and maybe makes more sense because of what we are trying to do this morning with the text. So I'll be skipping around on some verses a little bit, but when I read it, it will seem like as if it all flows together. In Ezekiel chapter 1, this is the account. As I looked, I saw a great storm coming from the north, driving before it a huge cloud that flashed with lightning and shone with brilliant light. There was fire inside the cloud, and in the middle of the fire glowed something like gleaming amber. From the center of the cloud came four living beings that looked human. The living beings looked like bright coals of fire or brilliant torches, and lightning seemed to flash back and forth among them. And the living beings darted to and fro like flashes of lightning. Spread out above them was a surface like the sky, glittering like crystal. A voice spoke from beyond the crystal surface above them. Above this surface, high above, was something that looked like a throne made of blue lapis lazuli, or as the King James puts it, sapphire. That's how the King James translated that stone, sapphire. And on this throne, high above, was a figure whose appearance resembled a man. And again, you can see the writer having trouble explaining exactly what he saw. So he said, there was an appearance that resembled a man. 
from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like gleaming amber, flickering like a fire. And from his waist down, he looked like a burning flame, shining with splendor. All around him was a glowing halo, like a rainbow shining in the clouds on a rainy day. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like. And that word glory, a word in the Strong's that describes this word glory is the word copiousness. Copiousness basically means a lot. And also a word that's describing the glory of the Lord is weight. There's a lot of weight in this description of the glory of the Lord. This is what the glory of the Lord looked like to me. When I saw it, I fell face down on the ground. Why did God show His glory to Ezekiel? And we know from the text that He had a message to give him. And He was to take this message to a rebellious people. Revelation chapter 1, John writing now, he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Think of that. As loud and as deep as my voice is, it's nowhere near the sound of a trumpet. This is the voice he heard. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace. And his voice was as the sound of many waters. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance what he saw when he viewed this image was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. I love reading about the glory of God and, and of the Son of Man, of Christ here, this picture. It's so inspiring to, to hear the description of this two-edged sword coming out of his mouth and how we read in Hebrews that The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. And to to read in Ephesians that we are to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. You put all that together, you get this beautiful picture of the power of Christ in me. Beautiful. And I hope we we can just take some time and think about that this morning. But there's another beautiful thing that I want to talk about. Because for for the children of Israel in the Old Testament, when they saw God's glory again and again, and when He fought for them and won battles, and, and when He miraculously provided for them, and then you come into the New Testament and you see God's glory on display in the person of Christ, and you see all the miracles that he did in healing sick and, and casting out demons, and you see him providing 
food for thousands and thousands of people from just a few loaves and fish. You see that glory on display, but did it have a lasting effect in the lives of the people that were there? For many, it didn't. It didn't have any effect. And they ended up rejecting God's plan anyway. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, you see that viewing God's glory, seeing God's glory was not enough. So I want to read a poem. to you that kind of gives an overview of what we want to talk about this morning. And I want to read it now, and at the end, I want to read it again. And if you want to have a copy of it to reread it or to be reminded of it, you can just let me know and I can get you a copy. So this is The Glory of the Lord. And again, glory and grace. We want to talk about glory and grace. So this is, we're going to bring grace into the message now with the poem, and then we want to talk some more about grace. Because grace isn't necessarily experienced when viewing the glory of the Lord. Grace is often experienced in the toughest time in your life. Maybe the greatest loss you've ever experienced. There is where you find grace. So, behold the glory of the Lord, to see His wondrous sight. Will this be all my poor soul needs to heal my earthly plight? Must heavenly vision reveal or golden dream conceal my strength to keep the fight? To see the glory of the Lord with eyes cannot compare, to veil torn and grace born in heartache and despair. I find true strength in grace alone. His glory is revealed. In thorn of flesh and humanness, in weakness we are healed. And rather than read it again, I'll plan, like I said, to read it at the end of the message. I want to talk about Paul. He had a thorn in the flesh, and there's been much discussion over what that thorn in the flesh actually was. Many feel it was a physical ailment. Uh, Others feel, and I would tend to feel this way, that his thorn in the flesh was a messenger of Satan that was coming in, an actual person that was coming in and was uh, spreading false teaching into churches that he had started and planted, and they had received him as a father in the faith. And then someone was coming in, uh, a Jew possibly, that was spreading false teaching and was tearing down Paul's reputation. Uh, But however, whatever you think was his thorn in the flesh uh, really makes no difference in, in what we gather from the text here. But Paul, probably as much or more than any person that ever lived the earth, had visions of the glory of God and saw God's glory. One example is when he was first called by God and there was this bright light that shined out of heaven and it knocked him down and he was blind for several days. 
we, we never read that any person up to that point was blind for days after having seen the glory of God. So I feel he would be somewhat of an authority on the subject. But he, he said this about his experiences with God's glory. He said, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. He had such experiences with God that there was danger of people viewing him as an angel or as maybe equal to Christ. He said, lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. And for this thing I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. God gave him, or for, you know, whether we say God gave this to him or whether this happened to him, it says, there was given to me, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. And what's interesting is if, if Paul would operate the way we often do today, the minute he would have been given something that was discomforting or something that was maybe even felt evil to him, he would have immediately said, Satan, get thee hence. Uh, go in Jesus' name. I, I command you to leave. And, and would have responded that way if he would have been where many of us, how, how we tend to, to operate when, when we come into pain and suffering or when we come in the presence of evil. But I see him responding here the way that, much in the same way that Christ responded when the devil came to tempt him. Again, the devil came to tempt him and, and from what we can tell, Christ in the account when he was tempted on the mount knew that it was the devil and he didn't tell him to flee. He rather responded in a way that worked against him. And that's what the scriptures tell us to do. That we are to draw nigh to God. And he will draw nigh to us. We are to stay strong in the faith. But in Christ's account, when the devil was tempting him, after all the temptations were done, there was a plan being played out. There was the purpose of God in those temptations. God was using evil for good at that point. And after he was tempted in, as the scriptures say, in all points like as we are, only then was the devil told to leave. Could it be that God operates the same way in our lives today? Because of his might, because of his power, he uses even evil to work his plan. Would it not be that way if we say God is sovereign? I heard the challenge earlier this week. If, if we say that God ordains some things but then not others, well then he's not sovereign. And if he's sovereign over some things, doesn't he have to be sovereign over everything? But one thing I do have full confidence in is that God uses pain and suffering and loss 
for good in my life. To say that he doesn't is to say he's not as powerful as what I thought or what the scriptures say. But he is all powerful. He conquered death, the grave, he conquered evil. And so everything, he's got the whole world in his hands. And so he was given this thorn of the flesh, Paul. Now we're talking about Paul again. And he sought the Lord thrice. And I love the fact that he went to God. He sought the Lord thrice that it might depart from him. And he said to me, my grace, and it's interesting, he didn't say, God did not tell him my glory is sufficient for you. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. What a testimony. To see Paul's response when God told him this, when he said, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Paul said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities. Do you see the contrast that rather than glory in the abundance of the revelations he was given, he said, I will glory in my infirmities. Because it's in my infirmity, in my weakness, that the power of Christ rests upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure. There's a, a certain joy he experienced in suffering, in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. I had a good friend of mine tell me just yesterday who had lost his son several years ago to drowning. And he was talking about loss. He said, yes, we all suffer loss. But God wants us as Christians to use loss to realize our real loss. Our real loss as humans is to, to be dead to God. For our spirits to be dead to God, that's the real loss. And he said that loss to be separated from God is a much, much, much greater loss than losing a loved one on earth. And he was in a position to say that, for he had lost the most precious thing on earth to him. God's grace, or God's glory, what is giving us strength? And I'm not downplaying God's glory, but when we are seeking after a sign, when we want to see God's glory, when we want to see a, a, something supernatural, let's instead realize that God's grace is sufficient. Paul would rather glory in his infirmities rather than in the abundance of the revelations. He had the revelations. He had the glory. Yet it was God's grace that made him strong in, in weakness. 
This verse, John 7, 38, Jesus was at a feast of the Jews and he stood up and gave this kind of as a prophecy uh, because it wasn't for that time, it was for our time when he said this. He said, He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And that's been a precious verse for me. And I've used it to encourage brothers that are getting ready to speak or that are maybe in a tough time in their life. This is a verse that's been beautiful, that's been an encouragement to me. He that believeth on me, as the Scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow living water. Out of his belly, that means the innermost part of a man, the soul, the heart, as the seat of thought, feeling, choice. Out of this flows rivers of living water. Does that depend on whether life is going good for you? Does it depend on whether everything fell into place? Or can it be said that even when there's heartache and pain, disappointment and loss, when those things come into our lives because of God's power, because of His grace, out of our lives can flow rivers of living water. Praise God. That's a beautiful promise. He didn't put parameters and limitations on when God's living water can flow from our lives except we believe, we trust. It's a life of trust. Sometimes I wonder how much we trust God with how controllable our lives are and how much we can manipulate situations to make them go the way we want them to. Life truly is like a river. And we really ultimately have no control Trusting in God, believing in Him, that's the only way we can have living water flowing out of our lives no matter what is coming into our lives. Trusting in Him, believing in Him. How can this be? Is it true for you? Psalm 34 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, His ears toward their cry. You know, the righteous are not crying unless they see their need of a Savior. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears toward their cry. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. How does he deliver the righteous? By his grace. By giving them a purpose in their pain. 
by giving them peace that passes all understanding. One of the most beautiful verses that I've come across in the Psalms, I want to read to you this morning, and I want you to think about it. I want you to have it on your mind going into the work week. When you come home to your families, when you're tired, and when you're happy. This verse, Psalm 119, verse 74, says this. This was, they're not exactly sure who wrote Psalm 119, but many think it was David. But the writer here says, May all who fear you, and he's talking to, of course, God, may all who fear you find in me a cause for joy. For I have put my hope in your word. May all who fear you find in me a cause for joy. For I have put my hope in your word. Putting hope in God's word doesn't happen overnight. You may have memorized scripture verses when you were young. But today, you rarely read the Bible. Or you have a morning devotional that you read a few paragraphs and a few good thoughts, and then feel you're equipped to go through the day. Try that with your diet. My wife had this thought, and I love it. She said, you can't eat one good meal and expect it to change your body. She told someone that, spiritually speaking. And I love that thought. I love that because it's so true. We can't eat just a few, like a, a little nutritious bar in the morning and then just go work hard all day and we're going to be fine. Not a problem. In fact, sometimes I skip breakfast and I don't eat the rest of the day and I'm working out in the trials and temptations of life and I'm fine. It doesn't bother me. That's, that's not going to happen, especially not long term. You have to eat healthy in order to have a healthy body. And it's the same way in our spiritual life. We must eat healthy in order to have a healthy spiritual body. And for you to be able to have joy. We need to move on. It's actually time to close. I think I've sufficiently brought out what I feel God's laid on my heart, and I wanted to share it with you. There's more that we could say, but remember, it's in God's grace, and it's in the trenches of everyday life that we realize His strength. Our P. 
people around you finding in you a cause for joy because you've put your hope in His Word. That's my challenge to you today. And to realize that God's grace is sufficient wherever you find yourself, whatever you're suffering or what you're dealing with today, rest in Him. You're in His river. Brooke and I were talking yesterday and she asked me something about what kind of boat I would be in on the river of life and I said I guess I wouldn't see myself in a boat. She was like, okay, so we had ourselves a discussion. And so we're both uh, learning to float and realizing that it's being connected with the source of the river. That analogy was recently shown me in a book that I read that it's being connected to the source of the river that makes all the difference. It's not in being in, a, in the right boat. It's not in being prepared for each twist and turn, but it's being connected to the source and realizing that the source controls the entire river. It's surrendering to the source. That's what I want to challenge each one of us as believers to remember the power, the greatness of our salvation. And it's found in God's amazing grace. Let's use His glory to inspire us, but His grace will see us through. Thank you for listening. May God bless you.